When DJ Gillis opens his eyes, he finds himself on the floor of the tunnel, lying there in the damp and the dark. He doesn't know what happened that caused him to pass out. As he wakes up, DJ sees someone else crumpled on the ground. It's David Riggs, the diver who told him to stop swearing back at training. DJ remembers Riggs slowly opening his eyes and starting to talk, but this makes him nervous. Without speaking, DJ points to the bailout bottle of oxygen attached to his hip, a sign for Riggs to conserve air. The divers are almost 10 miles into the tunnel. If something's gone wrong with the breathing system, there might not be any oxygen to spare. Then, DJ hears Haas behind him. So you guys all right? Like, yeah, Haas, what the fuck happened? I don't know, man. Haas says that one minute, DJ and Riggs were working, untangling their breathing hoses, and then suddenly they both dropped to the floor. When that happened, Haas switched them to backup oxygen, quick thinking that saved all three of their lives. They'd been lugging the large backup tank with them this whole time. Once the backup air started flowing, they revived. But the divers now know they have to retreat. We gotta get out of here. Enough's enough. Everything's going to hell. We didn't, we didn't know what was causing the effects. Okay, so all right, we, what we do know is we're in the tunnel, we've lost consciousness. Now we're awake and we're breathing. Now, are we safe with just that bottle of air? Is that, is that keeping us okay? And we have to pay for it later, or what's really happening? The divers don't know how much time they have, and they don't know how much time this backup oxygen will buy them. They don't even know what caused them to pass out, although they have a feeling it was the experimental breathing system, the same breathing system that has failed multiple times already. And worse, they don't know what's happened to Tim and Billy, the other two members of the team. According to reporting by author Neil Swidey, Tim and Billy are in the Humvee, about half a mile away. They're supposed to be monitoring the radio and breathing system. When Haas saw DJ and Riggs hit the deck, he radioed to ask about their oxygen levels. Tim responded in a panic, saying they were at 8.9. That's dangerously low. Breathable air should be more than double that, at 21%. Then, Tim's line went silent. Back at the far end of the tunnel, the three divers decide they have to turn back to the Humvee. It's a slow retreat, almost a crawl. They're dragging their breathing hoses and the heavy tank of emergency oxygen. At the same time, they can't even panic. If their breathing rate elevates, the men will lose even more air. DJ, Haas, and Riggs aren't sure what they'll find when they get back to their friends. And they're not sure how any of them will make it out of the tunnel alive. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Joe Hawthorne, and you're listening to Eclipsed, 
This is the final episode in our three-part series on the disaster at Deer Island. This is episode three, The Escape. DJ, Haas, and Riggs slowly make their way back through the tunnel towards the Humvee. The Humvee where Tim and Billy are waiting. And you got to remember, the tunnel is, um, it, it's, it's, it's misty, foggy, dark, low visibility. But as the Humvee comes into view, DJ sees something through the darkness. I was the first one to spot Billy, and I says, we've got a man down, and everybody just kind of froze, and I said, uh, I'll go. It's possible that DJ was able to recognize Billy through the dark because he knew him so well. Billy's the one diver on the team DJ knew before taking this job, a mutual friend of his and Tap Taylor. Tap had asked DJ to keep an eye on Billy before they went into the tunnel today, and DJ assured him that he would. As DJ gets closer, he sees that Billy is slumped against the curved wall of the tunnel. Billy's feet have slid across the mossy floor until he's partially underneath the Humvee. Our lights were shining up for helmets, and I found him. I looked into his face mask. His eyes were open, no response, no pulse, no blood pressure, no nothing. You know, I tried resuscitating him. We weren't allowed to do mouth-to-mouth because you couldn't remove your uh, breathing apparatus. You could only do chest compressions and open the airway, which didn't work. Um, I don't know if it's because of uh, failed technique or if it's because the time that they were already dead before we got there, you know, one or the other. Meanwhile, Haas has gone to check on Tim. He finds him in the driver's seat of the Humvee. He's unresponsive, no pulse. Tim still has his hand on the valve to switch to backup air, similar to what Haas had done to save the divers at the far end of the tunnel. Back on the other side of the Hummer, DJ continues trying to resuscitate Billy. Then he looks up at Riggs. I mean, I'm sure we all look terrified. But he really looked terrified to me. My initial opinion was that uh, Riggs has just kind of lost it. And I think that he's considering running. And he's never going to run nine and a half miles out of here with the 15-minute <laughs> breathing supply on him. Author Neil Swidey writes that Riggs was trying to collect himself. But the point is, they need each other to pull off an escape. The divers are almost 10 miles from civilization and a breathable atmosphere. There's just too much gear to manage, too many tasks to complete. And no one is coming to help them. At first, they think they can at least cut the trailer and the back Hummer loose. The trailer is loaded with bottles of flammable liquid nitrogen and oxygen. And the divers are worried that if the trailer jackknifes or causes a spark at any point. You know, we're literally ants walking inside a shotgun barrel when it goes off. But then, DJ realizes they've got another problem. By this point, the surviving divers have all switched to emergency devices called rebreathers. They're called rebreathers because they recycle air for the divers to breathe. They're bulky pieces of equipment, and each of the divers is now hauling one of these around. There's no way they can all fit into one Humvee with their rebreathers on. Not if they want to take Billy and Tim's bodies with them. And they're determined to get their friends out. 
It's a struggle to get Tim and Billy's bodies onto the trailer, but they manage to do it. Riggs gets in the driver's seat, and the team heads for the exit. By this point, the divers have had very little communication with the team on the surface, the ones above ground at the Deer Island plant. Radios can't reach the surface from this far down, beneath the ocean floor. They can only communicate via hardwired phones set up at various points along the tunnel. Haas has already found one of these phones and let the surface know that they have two men down. That's pretty much been the extent of their communication. This is according to Neil Swidey's book. But as they make progress towards the end of the tunnel, they get closer to radio range. Suddenly, inside the Humvee, the handheld radio comes to life. DJ picks up and hears the voice of his friend, Tap Taylor. Tap's the owner of the diving company, who convinced DJ to take this job. I said, Tap, uh, <clears throat> we got a, we've had a problem down here. I said, I said, what kind of problem? I said, a bad problem. I said, everything's gone to hell in a handbasket here, man. We're eating lunch with DJ when he gets to this part of the story. We're sitting in this bright, busy restaurant, but even now, decades later, DJ is right back in that tunnel, in a dark place. DJ remembers Tap asking about Billy, but he can't bring himself to say their friend is dead. I said, he's done here. He says, let me talk to him. He says, well, he can't talk to you right now, Tap. He goes, well, where, where is he? And I said, he's no longer here, Tap. I said, he couldn't take a left and he couldn't take a right. There's no lefts or rights here. So forget about talking to Billy. Billy's expired. DJ remembers that Tap and Billy were so close that they had their own shared language. For example, they didn't say Roger in response to each other on the radio. Instead, Roger, you know, that was the response, Roger, instead of Roger that. And that was one of the last things I heard him say. So when Tap finally understands that Billy is dead, that's what he says. Rajo, and he said, can you bring him out? And I said, I'll bring him with me. Even now, DJ thinks about the morning before he went into the tunnel with Billy, when he promised Tap that he would keep an eye on him, that Billy would be fine. Oh, well, you come back with me. I'll bring him back. Don't worry about it. And I go, he's traveling with the best. He'll be all right. We'll get him out. No worries. You know, and I regretted those words for years. No harm was meant with them. It wasn't meant to be pompous. It was just fun and joking, but killed me anyway. As the divers near the end of the tunnel, Riggs stops the Humvee. DJ and Haas get out to check the bodies in the trailer. When they come around, Tim's body has slid partially off the side. They realize one of his legs was caught in the axle. And that was like a breaking point for me there. That was when I like it. Really had had enough of this holding your head together with, you know, keep it together, don't panic. And I remember looking up, um, <clears throat> of course you couldn't see past the top of the tunnel, but looking up, insinuating, looking towards God and asking, just straight out, you know, like, fucking, when's enough enough, you know? He's dead. And he's dead. And I, I don't even know the number of people that are going to suffer over the loss of these two. 
and now you want to tear his legs off of him too, you know, before we get him home. And uh, remember how, how irate I was about all that. DJ and Haas decide to ride on the trailer with the bodies the rest of the way. Finally, they make it out of the tunnel, reaching the long vertical shaft that connects to the surface. Tap Taylor is waiting for them at the bottom of the shaft, and so are teams of paramedics who rush to Billy and Tim. But the divers know it's already too late. Another breaking story to report to you at this hour. Two men have died in an accident on Deer Island. The two men were part of... A when news of the accident reached the surface, Doug McDonald, the water management director, got a call in his office. It just was like a thunderstrike, I mean, a thunderbolt. It was just unimaginable. What, uh, it was unimaginable. McDonald called the federal judge who'd ordered the Deer Island cleanup in the first place. And then he headed out to the site. It was a scene of chaos, and mostly what somebody like me could do was just stand around and be miserable. McDonald spent much of the rest of the day talking to the press. There's obviously going to have to be a full investigation, and we are very concerned uh, about why the procedure failed after all the attention that had been devoted to uh, making it a safe procedure. McDonald felt horrible for the divers and their families. And in the coming weeks, he thought about how a decade of his work to clean up the harbor had culminated in disaster and death. He wondered about the human cost of the tunnel and whether it would all be for nothing. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. After the deaths of Tim Nordine and Billy Juss, the Deer Island project stopped entirely. There were still more than 50 plugs that had to be removed, so now the tunnel was useless. We knew that without the tunnel, we'd just spent $3 billion for a treatment plant that wasn't going to perform the way it was designed to perform. The Boston police closed off the tunnel as a possible crime scene, and an investigation got underway. Eventually, officials zeroed in on the thing the divers had been complaining about all along. The experimental breathing system was determined to be the point of failure that cost Tim and Billy their lives. Prosecutors in several jurisdictions hoped to arrest the engineer, but no charges were ever filed. Meanwhile, OSHA, the government agency responsible for worker safety, declared that no one was allowed to enter the tunnel unless it was full of oxygen again just like it was back when the sand hogs were digging. But no more of this rinky-dinky, we'll take air with us. There had to be air in the tunnel. The project stalled for the better part of another year. But then, inspiration. We conceived uh, 
the notion that if we had a bit of luck, we could actually take a, a straw, a big straw, lower it over the one spigot top on which the plug had been removed, take the screws off the spigot top, put a jet engine on top of the straw, and blow the oxygen in from the ocean end rather than from the shaft end. The tunnel was in ambient free air in 18 minutes. This was only possible because the divers had successfully removed some of the plugs. So the giant steel straw could attach to the tunnel. Without the divers' efforts, Deer Island could have stalled out. And then Boston Harbor would still be a cesspool, full of sewage and coated with a layer of black mayonnaise. But with Deer Island finally functioning, Boston's waterways transformed. We hear a lot about the cleanup of Boston Harbor. After nearly 30 years of work, the cleanup effort is paying off. Today, it's actually one of the cleanest urban harbors in the world. Watch and listen. Herring being chased by larger fish. It is the spring herring run. And these fish have returned to the Charles in numbers that we have not seen in many I don't years. Be, I don't want to be, you know, romantic about a sewage treatment plant, but they should be delighted. I mean, it's a monument to our generation deciding that we're going to clean up after ourselves, and we did a pretty good job. At the end of our trip, we visited Deer Island, and it really is amazing. Deer Island's kind of constructed like Disney World, where there's a whole world of activity that happens underground. Imagine a wastewater plant the size of a college campus on a harbor inlet with a hiking trail around the entire facility. Despite managing millions of people's waste, there's almost no odor and barely any noise. I saw maybe a dozen employees managing the entire sprawling complex. When we walked through underground passageways, you could hear a pin drop. It felt science fiction-y, like the future of sanitation, which makes me melancholy to say, because people sacrificed so much to make this a reality. On the island, there are several monuments dedicated to Billy and Tim and those who died during construction of the project. Reporting the story, I could tell how much Billy and Tim were missed. When we spoke, Haas brought up how Tim would mentor other divers, taking young guys under his wing. Billy's family remembers how he cared deeply for the people in his own life. He had a passion for safety management and was saving money to open a bed and breakfast with his partner. The two brought so much to the team, and their loss was felt by those who knew them well, or even just a little. As for DJ, he hasn't dived in Boston Harbor for nearly two decades. He's left behind commercial diving entirely. But from time to time, he goes out to visit the monument. And when he goes, he can see big fish swimming around in clear, clean water. Water so clear, you can even see shadows of the fish cast against the rocks. If our work really played uh, an important role in that, that's, uh, I'm proud of that one, you know? That, that, was, that was good. Earlier in our interview, DJ pondered an existential question. How would I describe myself? I don't know, maybe, maybe um, the, the blue-collar, mm-hmm. hard-working, I believe should be treated as accordingly to how you treat people. 
It might sound old-fashioned, but maybe Deer Island is as simple as that. A massive human endeavor. A project people gave everything they had for. Workers spent years digging in the dark. Families lost friends and fathers and husbands. Men lost their lives. And it's not that the sacrifice can ever be truly measured or balanced against the end result. But the ultimate success of the project benefits millions of humans every day and has benefited an ecosystem beyond measure. And now, the Deer Island facility just hums along because the job is done. Next on Eclipsed, a special epilogue to our series on Deer Island. We talked to DJ Gillis about his life as a commercial diver, the highs that got him into the business, as well as his years spent grappling with the Deer Island disaster. Eclipsed is a production of Campside Media. This week, it's hosted by me, Joe Hawthorne, and written by Michael Canyon-Meyer. We're produced by Lynn Gerbig, Joe Hawthorne, and Tanita Rahmani. Special thanks to DJ Gillis, Donald Hosford, Lorraine Jones, and Doug McDonald for sharing their time and experience. Thanks to Rhea Convery and David Deust for showing us the modern Deer Island facility and explaining in great detail how everything works. And a big thank you to author Neil Swidey. His book, Trapped Under the Sea, One Engineering Marvel, Five Men in a Disaster, Ten Miles into the Darkness, was very helpful in reporting this series. If you'd like to learn more, I highly recommend checking out his book. Archival research by Caitlin Rathy. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineers are Garrett Tiedemann and Ewen Lai-Tremuen. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are Bijan Steven and Michael Partyboy Canyon-Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriatis. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsed at campsidemedia.com or tweet at us at eclipsedpod or send us a text for 917-810-3294. Thanks for listening. See you next time.